Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. Being worried that you might have a serious illness is possibly the main reason people go to see their GP. But for those with health anxiety, that worry can be all-consuming, and the reassuring effect of a consultation or investigation can wear off very quickly. In today's episode, we'll be getting some tips from leading experts in health anxiety, and from someone who suffers from it so we can better recognise when someone might have health anxiety and get them the right help. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. And as usual, I'm joined by uh, Jenny and Navjoy. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. And Navjoit, how are you? Hi, I'm well, thank you. Uh, I'm Navjoit Larder. I am uh, a locum GP and head of education at the BMJ. So we had a little break, didn't we? We've um, not had an episode like this for for a month. Um, we did leave people a little bonus episode, which was Jenny's one of Jenny's interviews, that which was great. It was such a good interview. Yeah, I really enjoyed Tell that us about interview. It, Jenny, just so that people haven't caught that to pique their interest. Yes, yes. Please <laughs> go back to the deep breath in feed and look for the deep breath with Whitney Robinson. She's a professor of social epidemiology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And she and I talk about um, vaccine rollout, the risks of getting it wrong, um, and kind of how we can do things better by starting at a community level. And it is real and honest yeah. and great. And she's so smart. Powerful, so if you haven't say. listened yet, go, go do yourself the Powerful favor. Stuff. We'll put that one on our <laughs> award nomination thing. <laughs> it was so good. And the bit where she talks about the kind of moral injury that a lot of healthcare professionals are facing at the moment from being forced to work outside their capacity or outside their usual limits really, really spoke to me. And I think speaks to probably a lot of people at the moment. Um, how are you doing? Yeah, I, well, Tom and Jenny. Well, well, I'll go first. <laughs> Sorry, Jenny. Uh, I mean, I, I, I was about to say, I, I think I needed the two weeks off because um, it takes, you know, it takes a bit of extra energy to, to do, put these podcasts together, doesn't it? Uh, I feel like I've been really run down. I had, a, had to take a day off with... Um, just a virus, but not coronavirus, I think. Um, but yeah, uh, feeling a bit better think? now, but with a bit of a break. But it's been really hard in, in general practice, uh, and I've really been feeling the strain. I think. Yeah, definitely. It's it's. Um, I kind of don't really know what it mm. is. That's the, I think the difficult thing to piece together in in the UK. That you know, there is this sense of optimism which i i know we're extremely fortunate to have in general with you know the um, levels of the virus diminishing and people getting vaccinated but the the kind of picture within for gps i think as this you know, everyone else is feeling quite optimistic but it seems quite it seems like general practice has become a lot tougher yeah yeah i think there's still the remote consultations and well we only last night on the day of recording the, the day, day before recording this we've been told we can now see people face to face again which is good and I think a lot of people have been feeling that was a major factor um, but also I guess pent up demand and and then maybe the other factor mm-hmm. is the online in the UK where we're contractually obliged now to offer these online consultations which which have seen to let the floodgates open a little bit for 
for perhaps more of the minor illness, um, which has made it hard to focus on on where I think the care is most needed. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely felt the number of kind of contacts, whether that's, you know, e-consults, telephone contacts, or seeing, you know, you say we're allowed to see people face-to-face. I think a lot of people have still been seeing people face-to-face, mm. maybe not as a face-to-face first option, but yes, first, um, think, yeah. that's still been going on. But just the number of contacts um, just seems you know, are really unmanageable mm. at the moment. Um, and, you know, that sense of decision fatigue that is so real, you know, I've really felt that yeah. um, in the in the sessions I've done uh, recently yeah. in a way that, you know, a few months ago in the pandemic um, and before I, I hadn't really felt so much. So Jenny, so, do, you, yeah. do you fancy a job in, in the UK as a GP? I mean, you could have mine. We're really selling it. <laughs> <laughs> we need you. So um, Come and join us. maybe we should stop complaining. <laughs> Um, I mean, so <laughs> I don't even know how to answer that. I, I miss, I miss seeing patients so much. <laughs> um, I actually just got offered a GP job here in New Zealand. Oh, congratulations. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so I'm looking forward to that, but, um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think like many things, Jenny, you you just you just be comfortable in New Zealand. You're you're better off. Yeah. As we as I feel we've been saying this whole year that we've been doing this podcast, we could all envy you in, in New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although I think you know, speaking to other people who do general practice here, I think there are similar frustrations and, you know, similar kind of feeling overworked, overburdened, underappreciated, um, perhaps, yeah, a little bit disillusioned. Mm. Mm. Well, that makes me feel better. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> shall we move on to our topic today? Um, which I think is, there are lots of things that related to what we've been talking about that the, the extra pressures and working remotely and um, and that's health anxiety uh so we thought it was a, it was a good topic to cover at the moment um it's the kind of thing i've always felt that i probably see it a lot or see lots of people who have health anxiety to varying degrees and i feel like i probably don't sort of identify those or, or get, get it quite right in terms of bringing it up and getting help to, to those people um but, but I'm not sure if, if that's just me. I mean, is that how, how you, you, you two feel? Yeah, I, f- I feel the same. Like I can think in my head of patients I've seen where, um, you know, it's it's obvious and, and you know, that, that patient might be known within the practice and, you know, there's sort of a strategy for what to do if that patient calls up. That's kind of one, one end. And then I think there's an entirely normal part of, you know, the spectrum where mm. being concerned about uh you know, symptoms that you're having or um, accessing healthcare, whatever it is that, you know, there's a kind of normal degree of worry. But Mm. I think there's a degree of the impact that um, someone's uh, medical condition or symptoms uh, or treatment is having on the patient that's quite hidden from us. I think we see people on the day and unless we ask, you know, how's this making you feel? How often do you worry about this? Or Mm. um I, th- I think there's, as you say, Tom, a, a good chance that we may not um, tap into what might be underlying something. Mm. Um, yeah. But how how often do you both feel when you see somebody that kind of exudes that anxiety? How often do you feel that your reassurances 
or kind of discussion about that actually makes the person feel better. I mm. I ask because sometimes, you know, I, like the way that we might think about approaching health anxiety is, okay, rule out something bad or make sure nothing really mm. horrible is happening. Think <clears throat> about what's common. Mm. Um, talk about, you know, different environmental factors and assuming that, you know, there's nothing that we think is really scary, like reassure. Yeah, yeah. But if someone is having, it, it, I just worry that that approach and potentially offering reassurances won't be felt as reassurance mm. by the patient. Well, um, we're definitely going to cover that in, in the interviews coming up because, um, yeah, what we want to do, you know, we're nice people. We want to reassure. We can see that <laughs> the person is... Is very anxious and hey I, I know that's not you know the pathology they're worried about and you can heap on your reassurance and feel like you're doing a great job um the um so yeah we're going to hear from two sort of researchers in, in health anxiety who've written um a couple of years ago an article for the bmj um about health anxiety it's a, a 10 minute consultation it was actually the first thing i commissioned when i started work here oh uh, wow <laughs> uh I think Way to come full circle. We have indeed, yeah. Oh, am I about to lose my job? Is this like... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I didn't mean that. <laughs> uh, uh, Travelled along the circle, Tom. Yes, okay. Completed the circle, <laughs> <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Uh, about reassurance. So one of, one of the things I learned, which I thought was really interesting about what they said in this article was that reassurance although it's very helpful at the time, it, it, it can be a bit of a drug. And so we'll, we'll hear from a patient describing that in, in a moment. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, they have this great sort of release because they've had this reassurance, but then actually very soon it comes back and maybe the more you reassure, or if you don't offer something as well as a reassurance, then, you know, actually you're, you're sort of making the problem worse. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, yeah, so... So I had a chat with um, a chap called Guy Edwards and he developed health anxiety about five years ago and has had some some help and told me especially about some of his experiences of seeing his GPs and what was helpful and what was less helpful. And that's coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. 
And back to my interview now with Guy Edwards. Right. Okay. So yes, I got health anxiety about five years ago and at first, obviously, I didn't understand it was health anxiety, uh, but logic brought me to that conclusion because um, every time I sorted out one medical problem, um, another one would appear and it was like whack-a-mole, you know. Um, I was visiting the GP surgeries twice a month. Sometimes, I suppose, there could have been an occasion where I'd been three times a month, but it wasn't, you, you know, every day or every week. And, and this is, this wasn't true for everyone, but but the older the doctor, the less helpful they were. And it was very much an issue of, there's nothing wrong with you, this thing, now get out of my office. Not quite as blunt, but in some cases, not far off and and also very dismissive they didn't understand that this was a mental health issue so they were kind of doing what it says on the tin if you like I come in to see a doctor I've got I, I'm worried about x and they and they deal with x when really it's y or z that the actual problem is then what I found was then there would be the junior doctors coming in or the, the ones learning to be GPs and they were very helpful and also they understood that this was a mental health issue. You know, they could see that I had health anxiety. How would but, they bring that up with you? How would they say, you know, I think you've got health anxiety or because um, it's quite hard well, to say to someone that they find. They, yes. They don't actually say the word health anxiety. Yeah. They say, I think you're, you're, you're suffering from anxiety. Mm. And we, what they do is sit down and say, what's been going on in your life to, to cause this? Mm. You know, is there been problems? And I say, well, yeah, I've had quite a few issues going on. And they would listen. Mm. Um, so, and that, at, at this early stage, was the best thing I could ever hope for they listened whereas the the older doctors there the older couple of doctors there they didn't listen they dictated mm. you know you really felt that you were in the presence of somebody important and whatever they said was what goes rather than yeah. you know listen to the patient's yeah. problems and then identify this mental health not actual physical yeah let's talk a bit about reassurance then because um i know reassurance i've heard can be like a drug for people with, with health anxiety is that was that your experience yes it is um you're always you're always seeking reassurance and it it, it, it i can imagine it, it's like being addicted to a hard drug because the more reassurance you get the more you need so you can I can remember actually going into seeing a doctor and then saying nothing's wrong it's fine and getting out in the car park and having this incredible high thinking wow brilliant you know I just want to jump up and down and you know I'm happy I'd get in my car 
And by the time I got home, something else would have popped into my head. Ah, and I think I've just showed him, if you take this mole on my leg, what about the mole on my back? Did I, sh why, should I have shown him that at the time? So you then, that you start to go into this downward spiral and that's it, you know, you get more and more anxious. So, and the, the worst thing you can do, and I would say this to anybody that's got health anxiety is go online. And as though we all know, if you go online, that there's various quacks out there, but even using sites like the NHS or particularly the U US sites, you know, the Cleveland Clinic and places like the Mayo Clinic, which are, you know, highly recommended, you know, they're, they're thought to be um, yeah. very stable sites, but with the person with anxiety, they will see, they they will miss out all the things, all the common things, and they would look like, the, look for the 5% or the 1%, mm. the cancer, mm. and that's all you could see. That's all, you always see the worst. Of you almost, it. Are you almost looking until you find the, the worst thing? You are. And yeah. the other thing I would, would add, in my case, is, so, you're very conscious of your health, you know, but your particular things. So mine is skin cancers, particularly melanomas, but um, also bowel cancers. But you don't worry about your heart, mm. for instance. And I go mountain biking, cycling on the moor, and I don't worry about going down steep gradients over bumps. It's only those certain subjects that get you. Just the last thing I really want to end with, like what, what you found really helpful and um, obviously this, having the listening and reassuring actually GP was helpful, but um, what what help have you found most useful? Okay, so um, as I said, I've said to you earlier, I've used a lot in the private sector and I wouldn't recommend that. Um, but the, the mental health units in that um we certainly have in devon the the people that can help you if you can navigate your way to the correct person and that is difficult um and the waits are incredibly long so i'm going from one extreme to another i was talking about gp surgeries in the in in, in small villages you can get to see a doctor within a day it, i waited over 12 months to see somebody with the Devon Mental Health or Devon and Cornwall Mental Health. And the first people I saw wanted to use um, cognitive therapies and stuff like that, which doesn't, don't work on me, but I persevered. And finally, I came across um, a psychologist that worked for them that was a real help. And I, we had 12 months of therapy. Um, speaking with him every other week which was very helpful unfortunately it timed out and you know that was the system i wasn't cured i was somewhat better but it stopped because i'd been um with them for 12 months so it's kind of where i'm at now um and i still have the anxieties um i still go for checks I see a dermatologist every six months to have my skin checked. 
I shouldn't, because the only way to stop this anxiety is, is I hold the key. But even so, I'm a strong person, I can't stop it. It is a drug. So lot, lots of interesting, I think really useful insights uh, from Guy's experience. Uh, and apologies for my sound quality. I think that's called recording at dinner time with children in the next room. So uh, apologies <laughs> about that. Um, which bits would you, uh, any bits that you'd like to kind of pick up on there, I think you? No, I, or I could do, rephrase that if you prefer. You should go ahead. Yeah, okay. Um, okay. Well, apologize. Apologies for the, some of the sound quality on my part there. That was called recording at dinner time with, with children in the next room. Um, but lots to pick up there from, from Guy. Uh, I, I mean, one, one big thing is about going online, isn't it? We so often hear from the patient, I'm sorry, I, I know I shouldn't Google it, but it is a phrase I seem to hear like all, all the time. Uh, do you, and, and I do it myself, you know, I think with, with coronavirus, you know, it's a, slightly different form of health anxiety but I kind of feel like I've had this over the last year and you know I've been checking so much on my on social media on media you know what are the rates what are the rates you know what, what how many people died today and, and almost feeling a similar sense I wonder to, to what I might be feeling to a greater degree uh, so I, I could definitely feel like online is a factor yeah and I think um in a way, it sort of links back to what I think you were talking about, Jenny, that about reassurance and what we sort of traditionally think of as being reassuring. And I think, you know, you might think that information is reassuring and, and perhaps for some people it is, but I can imagine for someone in the grips of health anxiety, it's not reassuring. It's actually kind of can, can make things can make things worse. Um, and yeah, Tom, you know, I was exactly the same and still am to some extent of, you know, when faced with uncertainty, you do feel this, or I feel this need to kind of seek out information to kind of, um, as a balm to that. But I, I, it's very unusual when that actually does make things feel better. Mm. And I think that Guy said to me afterwards, actually, so not, not on that interview was, he finds the, the dermatologist that he sees every six months very helpful because they really take ownership and, and tell him, I have checked your moles. You must not check them for the next six months or, or mm. words to that effect. And, and sort of owns that responsibility and sort of mm. takes it away from, from Guy. And so that he feels that, well, he, yeah, he, he, he wanted me to sort of get that across actually, that, that that's something he thinks that his doctor really helps him with by taking that's so fascinating yeah interesting which is sort of the opposite of what <laughs> what we tend to try to do these days isn't it which is about passing over the ownership to the patient yeah and encouraging totally. that kind of self-management yeah. yeah i mean who i mean i don't want that responsibility <laughs> like, i don't want to say like i have checked you i can I, but i suppose the dermatologist is saying let me let me take ownership over the checking and the kind of exam part. Hmm. Whereas I, I think that the challenge about reassurance is that, you know, we can never know with 100% certainty or rarely know with 100% hmm. certainty what something is or whether or not something is wrong. And um, 
So, you know, it feels like a big call to kind of put your stamp yeah. down. Like, you are okay. Yeah. Um, was it was it episode it two? Was, um, Iona Heath saying, never, say, never tell a patient that they don't have cancer. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I thought it was so interesting, this idea of reassurance as a drug. That's not something I'd heard before. And thinking the more you get, the more you need. And it made me think about kind of the therapeutic value of the visit to a GP itself. So um, my father-in-law was a GP for 43 years. He's retired now. And um, he all he's very fond of telling tales about how, you know, he just had patients kind of come to him even though nothing was wrong and they just – there was something so therapeutic about just having a chat with someone that you've developed a caring relationship with and and that whether that manifests as health anxiety oh doc i needed to come in so you could check like this this or this or whether it's just like they need that kind of yeah again that that therapeutic value from the visit itself i mm. just found that really interesting mm. yeah the listening listening being so key mm-hmm. um, again we'll, we'll hear a bit more about listening in, in a moment from from Helen Tyra how do you both approach um this idea of uh like this the spectrum of you know what you could consider a I don't want to use the word normal um mm. but like at what point do do you sort of draw a distinction between sort of concern about your health and health anxiety. I also asked this, this actually brings us to our next interview. So if we go to that now, that is actually the first bit we, we talk about with our two experts. So this is um, Helen Tyra. She is a former GP, um, senior research fellow at Imperial College uh, and has written a book, Tackling Health Anxiety, a CBT handbook, which is aimed at GPs and other health professionals about how to learn about how to deliver CBT for health anxiety, which um, I haven't read, but I would like to. Uh, if you can send me a copy, that'd be great. And uh, Peter Tyra is a professor of psychiatry, also at Imperial College, and they do a lot of work together on this topic. And uh, yeah, I had a chat with both of them. And yeah, we started with that about the difference between health anxiety and anxiety about one's health. Um, uh, and just one other thing, they talk about uh, nurses delivering some of this um some of this in- intervention. So what one of their research studies was actually training up practice nurses to deliver CBT-based um, uh, interventions for health anxiety, uh, which we can talk a bit more about, but I thought I should mention it now because that's going to come up in the interview. And that's coming up after this offer for Deep Breath In listeners. As a GP, you want to ensure your practice is in line with the latest clinical guidance. That's why all NHS staff in England, Scotland and Wales have free access to BMJ Best Practice. With extensive coverage of the most commonly occurring conditions, BMJ Best Practice helps you treat patients with confidence. Structured around the patient consultation, it includes differential diagnosis and treatment algorithms, videos of common clinical procedures, important update alerts for evidence changes, over 250 medical calculators, links to local guidelines, nearly 500 patient leaflets, and an award-winning app for access anytime, anywhere. Create your free account today by visiting bmj.com slash ukaccess. Funded by Health Education England, NHS Education for Scotland and NHS Wales. And now we'll go back to that interview with 
Helen and Peter Tyra. Is there a distinction and what is it between what I would feel as a normal, like I've got a symptom, I'm worried about it, or I'm thinking about it at bedtime, you know, it's, it's this is starting to really worry me versus health anxiety as, as you're talking about there. Well, the difference is really one of intensity uh, if, uh, and, uh, and belief. If you uh, worry about it so much that you check over and over again, uh, checking is one of the awful things that people do in health anxiety. Mm. Uh, so it actually handicaps your life. That is very different from saying, oh, well, I've got these symptoms. Uh, oh, um, uh, I'm worried about them, uh, but I won't do anything at the moment. I'll... I'll see if it goes away, which of course, in most cases, it does. The health anxious person immediately tunes into saying, "Oh, that spot on my uh, chest is a melanoma. I've got to go and consult immediately." And it's paralysing health- fear. The level of fear is like if you just realised you'd given an intravenous drug at the wrong dose that was likely to kill somebody. It's that not that I've ever done that, but it's that kind of level of fear that people have. Uh, and and it's it, it um that that's why when I'm talking to people is it what's really bothering you is the fear of the disease mm. isn't that what's really concerning you and that's uh, and that's picked up quite quickly not least because of course the fear of the disease is actually much better than having the disease uh, and therefore yeah, if, if they feel oh well we could, if you can deal with the fear then that would be a positive way forward for me yeah and um, the other um, I mentioned checking, and uh, this is where Helen has been very good in developing experiments here. If you actually ask people not to check on things like their pulse or whatever it is, whatever they're concerned, and you give them a diary, for example, you say, well, do a, here's a diary, and on these days, you check as much as you like. On these other days, you don't check at all. And let's measure your level of anxiety on each of these days. And almost invariably, on the days when they don't check, they have much lower levels of fear and anxiety. So, in, again, it, that shows to them that their health anxiety is anxiety and not actual disease, which is just waiting to pounce. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about one very recent um, form of checking, which is buying your um, pulse oximeter and checking your oxygen saturations uh, if, you've, if you have COVID and afterwards very popular thing lots of clinicians encouraging it lots of patient groups thinking this is a really good idea is this is is a is this the 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 downside of it that for some people it's going to make matters worse absolutely and uh uh it's it's uh for those who are health anxious they can become completely obsessed by doing that and repeating it over and over again uh um, uh, just in the same way people will obviously buy blood pressure machines and keep on measuring their blood pressure when they soon have a high blood a single mm. high reading makes makes have a panic attack so um uh, th- th- and this is again a consequence of new technology we're going to be able to do many many more of these monitoring uh, processes uh, and that is almost certainly going to increase health anxiety mm. yeah i've um I can't remember who, who it was, but I was li- listening to something on the radio, somebody talking about uh, societal uh, causes of functional illness and, and and how we need to be thinking more about how society and um, 
you know what's going on around us it is actually the thing that's causing many of these these more functional kind of disorders is that is that something you well is that what have i got the right end of the stick there or is, that, is this what we're talking about with health anxiety it's difficult to know how much is due to society i mean uh, it's, I mean, it's a social thing there, hasn't it, really? yeah hypergondriasis and health anxiety. yeah hypergondriasis as it as it was it's always it's always been around it's actually <laughs> and it I, often comes with a trigger doesn't it that some, yeah. something unnerves you and yeah. then you link into what is the most mm. topical disease at the moment you know so that things go through phases it, you know it used to be syphilis and then it was AIDS and then it went as we got syphilis levels because I worked in GU medicine as well when that came up that that came back into fashion and there was motor neurone disease and um so these things have fashionable trends and obviously COVID is a big one at the moment. I, I, I'm not so sure the functional disorders are increasing at the same frequency as health anxiety is we just don't know but um uh, uh I, I think we haven't got hold of this in certainly in secondary care. I think we spend a tremendous amount of money uh, on unnecessary investigations and tests. We're, we're, we're just doing a follow up of our big study, which we carried out uh, between 2008 and 2018, which was a six year follow up. We showed, in fact, incidentally, that our treatment at this six session treatment after eight years was still significantly better people were significantly better than they were if they'd never had it so that you don't normally have a, I mean, a, a short psychological treatment that lasts so long and also there's a way of if you suspect somebody who has this there, there are what i call my probe questions which is are like if you suspect somebody rather than being an incredibly enthusiastic registrar who wants to discover a really rare disease or something you said something like have you been worrying a lot about this problem Physicians are terrible about asking if people are worried. And then if they say yes, do you say, do you tend to worry a lot about your health in general? And um, do you ever feel there might be something more serious going on than the doctors have found so far? Mm. And they say yes. Um, then you, um, you can give them a questionnaire which to fill in. And if they score above a certain level, you could say, well, we're very interested in the extent to which people worry about their health because it makes problems they have much more difficult to deal with and 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 get into it then. You're not accusing them of it, of it all being in the mind, mm. but it's a way into to saying, well, obviously, clearly you are worrying about this loss and I think we need to address the worry alongside everything else. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And the other, the other big point about bringing a nurse in then is that in the clinic or practice nurse in general practice, is that you aren't, you aren't saying it's all in the mind, but if you say, oh, well, I think you need to see a psychologist, uh, that, that's so, immediately. So if I, uh, well, I, I just want to yeah, bring in there another thing that I found useful in the article that you, you co-authored is um, acknowledging that you're still going to take their physical symptoms very seriously. Um, is, yes. Uh, you know, they, and, we can talk about the distress, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to take your physical symptoms no. seriously and investigate those appropriately according to, to those symptoms. Yes. So that, that there's a sort of a way of thinking about it that you can teach to medical mm. professionals is saying, I want you to imagine you've got your patient here who has these symptoms and has really high health anxiety, but they also have a twin 
with exactly the same symptoms or will come along with the same symptoms, but they don't worry about their health. And I and if and if you consider the symptoms in the twin who isn't worried, would you consider investigating those? So you're not just investigating because they're scared, you're investigating because actually this person's come along and this might be a symptom we need to worry about. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's very useful. Are there any other mm. um, communication tips? Because, uh, yeah, well, this is a thing we like to cover a lot on the podcast because it's GPs listening. Any other kind of quick nuggets like that that you can kind of say in the consultation to help either get into this subject or just some simple things that the patient can start to do or something that might just flick a switch for them after the consultation? Um, I think really, I think what you want to get to is that they may be really frightened they have this disease, as Peter was saying, but don't have it, but they have the disease they fear. And what you're doing in therapy is building up evidence for both cases. But one of the things that you do is look, is to start off with, you have to find a bit of evidence and really diarying is the way you do that. And um, is getting them to keep a, a simple diary of what their symptoms have been like, because sometimes they say their symptoms are terrible, they're worried 100% all the time, but you can break it down and find that actually when they're distracted, they don't have these symptoms at all. The, the single question which uh, uh, Hannah mentioned already, of course, is that do you worry a lot about this symptom? I mean, it, it is that, 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 that has to come fairly early on. Um, mm. And um, uh, I, I, I think the, um, the, the other the other point, which again is intrinsic to these probe questions, is that you're not, you can talk about worry, that's all right, but you can't imply there's something wrong with their mental functioning and that they need to see a psychologist. Yeah. Uh, and and that, that, that will lead to anger and rejection. Um, but, but I also think, also think if you, you ask them, I mean, do you tend to check for this symptom a lot? Does it play on your mind a lot? Are you do you tend to find you're asking the family about it a lot of the time and that you're preoccupied with it? That might be another way, mm. if you've not got much time, mm. of finding out things. Because people go to extraordinary lengths. I mean, they, they photograph their stools to see if they're a slightly different colour and they have a whole series of photographs across the room or something. And, they, you know, they may be embarrassed to talk about that. But if you can tease out that they are doing some of these activities, it would be a relief to them to be able to tell somebody and acknowledge that at least they have got a worry problem yeah. because they know they worry. Um, so it's, it's finding that up, um, mm. loosening, loosening their ways of thinking so they can approach you about it, I think. Yeah, the, the, the other part of, um, uh, of the presentation is that, uh, and again, Helen has concentrate on this as well before is that people want to explain their symptoms and people with health anxiety actually want to go into great detail usually about their symptoms and of course the average doctor comes to a decision fairly early on and tries to no, move the conversation on let's stop but in fact they do feel very very concerned that you must know everything about their symptoms mm. that's one of the reasons yes. why you often need a bit more time they, they often think that if you don't let them explain everything then the one itch behind their left ear might be the clue that you have to get that actual diagnosis so I, I have said the first patient I ever actually really treated um 
very it was very clumsy CBT, which I was learning at the time. But the first session was just taking copious, interested notes about every single thing she said for an hour. And then and I when she came back, I thought, oh God, this is gonna be awful. It's gonna be the same thing again. And she sat down and said nothing because I'd heard her. And then she wanted to go forward. And that was really gobsmacking for me. And then we found out how it was affecting her life. And and then that that was so it is actually quite interesting how these these things work. But the average GP won't do what Helen did. That's the problem. They won't have that time. We, we run a charity of which one of the trustees is a GP and she knows all about this subject. And she always leaves the last session of her um, surgery to someone with something like health anxiety, something I'm going to need extra time for and I'm not going to be rushed for. Uh, so again, of course, in, in today's NHS, that's remarkably difficult. But if you can do that, it makes mm. a big difference. Mm. And and also, just quickly, it, the average number of sessions in our big study that we did in secondary care was five, I think. Six. 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 It was six. So, you know, that's probably going to save an awful lot of time in the long run, mm. you know, and a lot of frustration. So shall we start with um, my favourite subject, which is <laughs> monitoring SAT probes and iPhone watches that monitor your ECG levels and stuff, which... iPhone uh, cameras to take pictures of your poo, or is that different? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you wouldn't include that in that category. I wasn't going to, no, but... You, there must be a mole mapping app by now, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what app? Mole mapping. More mapping up, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's definitely people trying to make lots of money out of that. I, I, I see online. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I whenever I think about these things, and and after you know, I, I'm against <laughs> Sats monitoring unless it's really needed. Um, I just think it's it's a recipe for, for for this for health anxiety, and you know, it's not uncommon either, and and yet it doesn't really get much attention. Yeah, I think we really overlook this side of the tools that we use um, and the kind of potential impact they have. Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I, I um, yeah, I, I wonder. Like, my my parents still have the Sats probe that they were given by, I think, their GP a few weeks ago when they, you know, uh, there was a sort of COVID worry, and they they got sent one at home, and they still they still take it out every now and again just to sort of check they're okay. Um, I mean, I don't think they have health anxiety, but I I, yeah. I guess they're not using that in the in the way it was intended to be used, and I'm surprised yeah. no one's come to kind of pick pick it back up. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yes, no, we've we've had thousands of SATS probes that have just made their way into the community. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't know where they are. Um, anyway, should we should we move on a bit more more to the the practical points? Maybe um, I thought there were yeah lots of lots of useful things there. Diarying, I guess we we sometimes ask people to, to diary things, but um, sounds like that's a key thing of the, the CBT is finding some evidence uh, and then working with mm -hmm. that, which I thought was quite quite useful. I've been relying on kind of recommending a diary of symptoms more and more over time, I've found, because 
especially when the symptoms are vague or when patterns would be really helpful for the diagnosis. It's very Mm. difficult sometimes to kind of get that from an initial encounter and even like giving, you know, some time, the patient a task, have a diary, and then to have a follow-up conversation and to look at it together or not, because a lot Mm. of people don't follow through. I just... I think it's a really <clears throat> nice tool. Mm. Yeah, yeah. When it works, sometimes you follow up and it hasn't happened, and then back back to square one. But yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> fair. Well, another thing which I found helpful, I had a couple of patients, I think, in the last couple of years, where I've managed to kind of talk about health anxiety and, and get them some help. Um, probably many more where I've not done so well. But um, one thing I have found really helpful is that line about saying. And, you know, we are going to take, or I'm going to take your symptoms seriously and treat them with, you know, the same seriousness and, you know, and, and making sure that the, the person is aware that you're not just going to dismiss all their symptoms and you think they're making it up. Um, mm-hmm. And I've sort of seen, well, when we used to see patients, see this a relief that, okay, you know, I can maybe give them permission to then talk about the, the anxiety because they know that it's not going to um, diminish the the this that you're taking it taking their physical symptoms very seriously yeah and that you're you know that there's still you're still open to treating those physical symptoms if they require it as well yeah yeah the analogy she used of the twin with the same symptoms but Mm. without the health anxiety i thought was really interesting as a way just to kind of frame it and to remember that, you know, just because somebody is worried doesn't necessarily mean that there's a justification for an additional test. I mean, that's how people get harmed, right? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just looking at, again at the the article, which we should all look at. Um, but something not mentioned in the interview there was about providing some alternative explanation for the symptoms. Um, that kind of telling a story of the symptoms is an important skill for us isn't it again I haven't mm-hmm. talked about that before now I'm not very good at it but um do you have, do you do you feel comfortable on this side of thing you're trying to explain you know health anxiety to someone um I'm just looking at the article as well no, <laughs> so I'm answer, sort of cheating <laughs> um yeah no but I think I think the example that they provide which would I mean we can describe is that mm. you know talking about um y- you know giving uh an, an explanation that say in the case that in the article it's about someone who's having palpitations and chest pain and tightness which they say you know in this instance is a symptom of anxiety rather than a cardiac disease and so they describe how their their explanation that they give to the patient is that this is like you know the, the body has various alarms in in that you know in symptoms that can manifest and in health anxiety it's like a false alarm um going off uh, when there's no actual threat um which i think is quite i i, I find that quite a useful sort of mm. i can imagine using that for sure mm. and the other one's like noisy but the, our bodies are naturally noisy and most mm. sensations are not symptoms of severe disease um yeah I think we've forgotten that a bit, haven't we? It feels, yeah. feels to me in my kind of very judgmental thing about society is that, you know, our tolerance of our bodies being imperfect and noisy is, has yeah. lowered in my lifetime. And yeah. that's a problem. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, and we've talked on this podcast before about the, the various reasons for that. And um, 
I do feel in this, um, you know, not to bring it back, well, to bring it back to what we were talking about right at the beginning, where, you know, we're seeing more contacts, it feels um, to me, and perhaps, um, you know, this pent up demand and and uh, maybe combined with this lower tolerance that you're describing, Tom, um, but also that, you know, if you're, if you're feeling so kind of fatigued by the number of contacts, your threshold, I think, for A, making sure you don't want to miss something and B, just it becomes a struggle then to kind of mm. go through that process of like, oh, I know I shouldn't order a test for this. I should explain what's going on. But I think there is a tendency to, I think, you know, mm. take people down a path of treatment and management for what is probably just normal and will get better in a couple of weeks. Also much more difficult to kind of listen, which we've heard yeah. from both of our, yeah. all of our guests that actually that's one of the best things that you can do is kind of, you know, bear witness, listen, be present as they um, exercise this need to kind of explain every last symptom so that, mm. you know, because they don't know if it's, as she said, um, the itch behind your ear, which is the key giveaway. Um, but yeah, like when when you're just completely overwhelmed, it's really, really difficult yeah. to, to be present and listen. Yeah. I mean, I felt that's last few weeks that, I haven't felt the space to listen or, you know, I know I'm going to be at work for 12 hours and listening to someone for an hour about their symptoms is just, I haven't been able to do it. And and that's led to me feeling that I'm not doing a very particularly good job at the moment. So, hmm. It's so hard, isn't it? I mean, I yeah, it's, it's really, really tough at the moment. Anyway, um, when do you last say to someone, keep an eye on it? Is that something you sometimes say to the patient? Oh, you're not quite sure how to to safety net, so just keep an eye on it and let us know if it's... uh, I mean, you're going to tell me that's a terrible thing to say, and I'm going to tell you that I say that multiple times a (laughs) day. It is a trick question, yeah. I'm trying to trap you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, that is just one last... I thought perhaps that's something we could could end on is, um, again, going back to Guy Edwards, our, our patient with health anxiety, he, again, just got back in touch with me and said, please make sure you mention this, that whenever a doctor says, keep an eye on it, it's the worst thing you can say to somebody mm. who, who has health anxiety because, you know, it's that sort of obsessive side to the to the condition, isn't it? Is they will really will keep an eye on it and, and that almost encourages or gives permission to, to check and to check and check and check. So I um, see. And puts so, the onus on the patient to check. Yeah, exactly. And I was thinking, I think I said this last this week to somebody who I know is very anxious about their health. And I think in my mind, I was thinking, I want to say, just just don't check it at all. But I know that I'm not comfortable with taking that that complete ownership, mm. you know, like the dermatologist is for, for this patient. But equally, I didn't want to say, come back in two weeks and I'll look at it again, because we don't have appointments in two weeks. And so I found myself saying, keep an eye on it. And instantly thinking that wasn't the right the right or maybe later thinking that wasn't the right thing to say it's tricky i mean i said i do i do definitely say it i'm thinking now you know that's a, like one of those stock phrases i think that i say a lot but i guess like a lot of safety netting we we should sort of put parameters around it like you know mm. um i don't know maybe instead of keep an eye on it check in four weeks and if xyz then mm. call us back or i don't know 
It's never easy, I find, to not always easy to define those parameters, though, yeah. particularly if it is something that, like the uh, example you're giving, Tom, where actually probably you could just say, it's fine, don't worry about it. <laughs> Sorry, that's not something we're meant to do either. <laughs> oh my God, I've, I've learned nothing from this episode. I'm going to go away and read that article. <laughs> okay, well, uh, I think we, we could. Sorry, should we leave it there? Should we end? Yeah. Good place to end? Yeah, well, me saying I've learned nothing. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah okay, that's good. But, but um, we, I just have a question. Did I, so but like, what, how, how are you supposed to close that visit? We can't say keep an eye on it. We can say, okay, check again in X period of time. But like, if you say, if anything changes, let me know. Or mm. if at any point you feel this is getting worse, are you are you are those like the equivalent of keep an eye on it? I mean, I say those two. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I think it's like. <laughs> I mean, I think it's probably okay to say keep an eye on it to most people. Yeah, it's where, the where, people where, with health anxiety. But yeah. um, probably um, it's it's going back to like the reason you feel you can't say keep an eye on it and and making sure that you're having that conversation about getting some longer term help and that might take a year or more to happen. Um, yeah, maybe in the meantime, you need to be having those regular checkups, you know, once a month, once every couple of months to try and contain some of that anxiety. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I I hate the thought of someone just struggling with that themselves while they're waiting for, you know, their CBT or whatever it is. Um, it, it kind of goes back to, you know, that, the what my father-in-law always reflected on with the therapeutic value of a visit itself and maybe just regularly scheduling somebody even if they may or may not have a concern but just say you'll come back in this period of time and maybe having regular visits can help ease someone's anxiety about whatever health condition they're worrying about mm -hmm. a bit like with our regular episodes of Deep Breath In, I guess. Yeah, you know, which which was a month between this and the previous one, but but only two weeks till the next one. So hopefully that that will contain anyone who's listening. <laughs> which, I'm sure I'm sure that it's not not We will be back in two weeks with another episode. And uh, I want to just thank, before we go, I want to thank our guests today. So Helen and Peter Tyra and Guy Edwards. Uh, and thank both of you. Jenny, good to see you again. See you next time. Nice to speak with you. Bye. And Navjoy, see you next time. Thank you. See you next time. And see you listener next time. Uh, but only if you subscribe to the podcast, which is available on Spotify, Apple, and wherever you get your podcasts from. Bye for now. <laughs>